It began on a cold and rainy evening, November 2nd, 1966, at approximately 7.25 p.m. I was driving my Ford Ecovan down Route I-77 from Marietta, Ohio to my home in Mineral Wells, West Virginia, and was nearing the intersection of Route 47. My truck was loaded with stereos and sewing machines. I started up a long hill going approximately 50 miles per hour, when suddenly, one of the sewing machines slipped off the top of the stereo. Hearing the crash, I turned on my dome lights to see what had fallen. Suddenly I noticed a car coming up the highway behind me, and he blinked his lights to pass. I continued at the same rate of speed, and the car passed me. Just then, I saw it. About 50 feet directly behind this car was this ship, as I have come to call it, and it quickly came up beside my truck. I thought at first it was another car. It was only then I noticed that it did not have any lights. Turning my head and glancing at the object, I saw that it was some kind of strange-looking machine of which I had never seen before. At this time, I was not frightened. The strange object pulled slightly ahead of me, turned sideways on the highway, and began slowing down. To keep from hitting this object, I slowed my truck and pulled off the highway to the right onto the shoulder so that I could go around it, but it completely blocked the road. It kept slowing down until it came to a complete stop, just as I did, stopping not more than 8 or 10 feet from it. As soon as it stopped, a door opened and a man emerged from within the vessel. After the man stepped from the object, I noticed it rose off from the ground and hovered a distance from 50 to 100 feet above my truck. Both of my truck's headlights remained on, as did the dome lights inside the cab. My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigan, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the hot-headed duo, Jay and Nick. I am working on my anger. My anger is righteous and beautiful. As well as a special guest and friend of the show, Jack Preston King. Woo! Yeah, I don't have a clever catchphrase. (laughs) (laughs) On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivit. So hi, friends. Hello. Nick. Yeah. And Rory and Jack. How's Hello. It, hey. How's everyone doing this fine winter night other than cold? I'm cold. Yeah, I'm cold. That, well, that, it's 50 degrees in Missouri right now, so I'm pretty pleased. It was really cold two days ago. So. Well, I'm jealous. You know, with how things go, we'll just alternate throughout the winter. One day it'll be 50, then I'll be 20, then it'll be negative 40. At the rate that we're going, that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> I'll never see snow again. No, no, you'll see snow. It'll just be in short, intermittent spurts between rain and, I, mean, I don't know, steam raining down. I'm going to swim to the bottom of Lake Ontario. And the entirety of February is going to be snow. I don't want that. It belongs in December. 
I your concept of seasons astounds me. <laughs> no reflection of reality. <laughs> I'm the one who's actually from Lanulos. So today we are joined by Jack Preston King, blogger and author. Um, how's it going, Jack? Thank you for joining us today. It's, it's going great. I'm glad that you invited me. Thanks. Heck yeah. I mean, we can't we can't help it. I mean, we've obviously noticed you uh, hanging around and you know on Twitter. So when we had the opportunity to uh, reach out, I we wanted to because we're all about you know connecting and talking to other people. Plus, it's more fun this way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I'm glad you did because I'm always in search of unusual podcasts, and and there just aren't enough of them. There's ten thousand podcasts out there, but most of them are just boring. Honestly, <laughs> I so, don't disagree. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of boring podcasts out there, and I am thankful to be amongst the group that is not. That's right. Well, I, I asked for two things out of a podcast. I want a podcast to be about the paranormal or something strange in some way, and I want it to be hosted by smart people. Aww. And that's what, exactly what I found on well, Octavian. Well, thank you. Aww. I appreciate that. My father will be proud. Oh, good. We're fooling them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are we ready to... Uh... To get into Visitors from Lanulos by Woodrow Derenberg. I was going to say, well, are we ready to get in? We haven't even talked about the book at all. But yeah, we're we're doing Visitors from Lanulos by Woodrow Derenberger today. Or is it Derenberger? I, I don't know. The reason I ask is because it is very clearly Derenberger with an N, but the copyright has his oh, name misspelled yeah. on it. It's yeah. spelled Derenberger with, with an M. I don't think a single copy editor saw this book until years after it hit the shelves. Actually, I know who edited it. Who? I found that in my research. It was edited by Gray Barker. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? The Silver wow. Bridge Collapse guy. Or the one that wrote the Silver Bridge book, right? Yeah, was was yeah. he drunk? I, I don't. He apparently did edit it. Uh, however, he didn't publish it in his imprint because he owned this. Uh, I think it's called the Sasarian. Yeah, or, something like that. Uh, press. And uh, he did not publish it through that. What he actually self-published it. And this book was only available for a long time by going to conferences that Woody was at where you could buy the books from him. Yeah, because there's like less than 100 copies worldwide for a long time. Till, till actually this reprinting. Correct. Specifically. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we ready to get into it? Yes. I'm ready. We are. Let's do it. Today, we go back to a story that kicked it all off for us here at Noctivigant. The story of Indrid Cold. We talked briefly about this fine fellow in our first episode on the Mothman prophecies. Today we're going to take a much closer look at this story. It kicks off with a familiar name, John Keel. Keel wrote the foreword for this book, and it noted that he had investigated several sightings of a man in shiny coveralls in the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area, around the same time as Woody's encounter. Keel himself, however, was not able to actually talk to Woody until three months after his encounter with injured cold, and Woody was already claiming additional encounters with cold by this time. Keel described Woody as a gentle, robust man with close-cropping sandy hair and deep blue eyes, full of sincerity and a reputation for honesty. After speaking with Derenberger, Keel was not able to find many holes in Woody's story and found that he spoke only of hard observations, with none of the contactee dogma Keel had come to expect when dealing with experiencers. Keel told a story of one time when he was with Woody at Woody's house. They saw blue orbs flittering about a field, which Woody claimed were ships under the control of Indrid Cold. Keel wasn't going to take Woody's word for it, not when these so-called ships were so close, so he went to investigate, something he would likely regret only a few minutes later. 
He didn't find the lights. He did, however, get electrocuted by a cattle fence, go face first into a muddy puddle, and was chased back to the house by an angry bull. I love this story. I, it, it, it's the most John Keel thing I've ever read. Because it's like, of course that happened to you just because you were trying to take a walk at night. Uh, it'd only be better if it was like a, the ghost of a bull. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> John, that bull's been dead for 50 years. <laughs> I feel like he was always one step away from falling into a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, maybe a half step. Yeah. I feel like every time Twilight Zone shit started to happen to him, he just said no really loudly and firmly and he snapped back to reality. During the time that Keel and Woody spent together, Woody told Keel of his trip to Lanulos. Woody claims that Lanulos is in the galaxy of Ganymede. Which, while unknown to Woody at the time, is also the name of a location that a group of experiencers in Mexico claim to have been taken to. It is also one of Jupiter's moons. Keel did not, at the time, believe all of Woody's story, and later came to think Woody was extrapolating at best. Keel says that Woody made no money on his claims and, as we'll see later in this book, suffered incredible blowback and ridicule because of them. Feelings before or after aside, I think that something Keel said in the foreword is a great way for us to approach this story today and really a lot of stories in the realm that we talk about. And it is, quote, I'm not asking you to believe any of it, but I'm asking you to listen to what he has to say. Incredible though it may seem, it is very possible that these very same things could happen to you tomorrow. Now, Keel didn't always think this way. In a book and documentary titled The Mothman Photographer, he had a slightly different tone about Woody. Because he was scared enough to go to the police. And nobody's going to go to the police with a bogus story. Derenberger is a, another complex character. He's a pathological liar, to put it simply. And his, his daughter called me a couple of years ago. It was... Uh, very upset that some TV show had done something about him. And uh, he, he, had, uh, he had given the whole thing up in the 70s or 80s and moved to Ohio. And people were always writing to me. They wanted to contact Derenberger because they wanted to contact Indrid Cole. Indrid Cole became a, a real entity to them. Now, this clip specifically is from the show Hellier, which played it for their documentary from the documentary that I had just mentioned, but it was in relation to their story. Now, I highly recommend going back and watching the entirety of Hellier because it's probably one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and 100% it's the best example of high strangeness I've ever seen. I, however, play this for several reasons. One, because it's okay to change your mind on things. We on the show change your mind about this, that, or the other thing on every single episode, it feels like. But also because I want to put into perspective the story that we're about to go through. Because overall, I think that the message here is great. But some of the stories that Woody tells are, to say the least, a bit hard to sell, even for the seasoned salesman that is Woody Derenberger. So with that, let's actually get started. On November 2nd, 1966, at approximately 7.25 p.m., Woodrow Derenberger was driving home to Mineral Falls, West Virginia, from Marietta, Ohio, along Route 47. He was a traveling salesman, and as such, his truck was full of stereos and sewing machines. 
A car passed him along the road, and when he looked into the rearview mirror, noticed that another car was trailing that one. But this one seemed different. This car, which is roughly 45 to 60 feet long, 12 to 20 feet tall, charcoal gray in color, and the classic UFO saucer shape, came quickly up alongside Woody's vehicle. I'm going to put it out there. I don't think that was a car. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not a car guy, so I don't know. That's a Chevrolet saucer, you dumbass. Well, it flew ahead, like actually flew, not just going fast, and then turned so that the ship was blocking the road. A door opened in this craft and a man emerged. The ship then lifted off and hovered about 100 feet in the air. Lanulose drift. <laughs> Quoting from the book, quote, he had a very pleasant appearance. It was about 5 feet 10 or 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighed approximately 180 to 185 pounds. His hair was very dark and thick and it was combed straight back over his head. He seemed to have a very good tan and looked normal in every way. The man approached Woody's car and through telepathy told Woody to roll down the passenger side window. So he did. He told Woody not to be frightened and then asked Woody's name, but Woody was far too frightened to answer, which is fair. The strange man then told Woody that he could answer verbally or in thought. Then, by the way of this information, transfer via thought, seemed to know Woody's name. The man said his name was Cold and that he was a searcher. He asked about the town of Parkersburg in the distance. Not understanding what a city or town was, Woody gave the mental impression of what these were to Cold, who told him his people called these gatherings. Cold communicated through facial gestures and telepathy and said more than once that he means them no harm. Cold then left, saying he would meet with Woody again. His ship then landed, Cold got in, it rose up and flew away. Woody naturally, does not remember driving home. Shaken, Woody talked to his wife, and upon her urging, called the police. The police indicated, for some reason, that they had spoken with two other men who had recently had an experience just like Woody's. Even knowing that this wasn't the only sighting that night, it still took him until about 3 a.m. to calm down enough to sleep. And speaking honestly, if it was me, I'm not sure I would have slept at all. Nope. No, you'd have been up for days. Yeah. You'd have been connecting postcards with red string. You'd have been calling Dana Newkirk and being like, <laughs> I need an aura reading right now. I'd, I'd just be calling everyone who ever told me aliens aren't a thing just to scream I told you so at them until they block my number. Well, yeah, especially because it's like, okay, what's your evidence, Nick? I saw one. He <laughs> blocked my car on the highway. I now have a new career. You're going to find me on the street corner in my underpants screaming about aliens. Why does it have to be in your underpants? I don't know. The, the shtick. Yeah, you got to have the image, right? Yeah, tinfoil hat, stained white undies. Oh, so this is a cultural costume. <laughs> and with that, we're at our first discussion question. Thank oh, God. excellent. So let's talk about our first impressions. Here we have a standard contactee story. Kind of standard, pretty standard when you actually, if you compare it to a lot of other contactee stories like this. So this has similar elements to the Hill story and really a lot of known abductee cases. At this point, are you on board with Woody's story and what are your thoughts? Like I said, let's talk first impressions here. Let's see. I think at this point, I am pretty on board with Woody. I mean, there's a lot in this book I can be on board with uh, in the sense that I have no reason to doubt it, but I also have no reason to believe it, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Um, I think at this point, the story of what happened to Woody on the road, I think to me, that is the most concrete element of the story in my mind that that's the thing I most believe happened. And the re and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that there were other sightings of, in, of a man named Indrid Cold in the area who introduced himself by that name. Very similar sightings of that uh, charcoal gray saucer, similar sightings of the smiling man. And so there are elements that it does seem like other people in the West Virginia area were encountering. Um, you know, and I, I suppose you, you do have that a little bit later as there were other people who claimed to go to Lanulos, but those testimonies aren't uh, when I try to track them down to real people. I really couldn't. Well, and that's the problem. A lot of them, you know, even says in this book that uh, they didn't want to speak out about it. Well, e even the I did find a uh, blog about a different injured cold contactee, but even they and it was they was you know written, I guess, I think by someone who was related to them. That was kind mm -hmm. of the impression I got. But the. It's still at the end of the day, they still didn't say their family name and they wouldn't come forward and say, you know, who they were, which I get, especially considering what happens to Woodrow later on. Sure. But um, it didn't it doesn't help me believe the later stuff that happens. That's a, this this first encounter. I'm I'm pretty confident I, has something akin to that happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is the part of the book I'm I'm most likely to believe. I will admit I have a much greater struggle believing it after i've read the rest of the book sure yeah. like like nick said it's like we i i have i have no reason and it did get you know you referenced me being very hot-headed i have a thing about when i realize someone has blatantly lied to me about some aspect of what's going on almost out of sheer anger i just go like well okay then i'm dismissing everything you said because you lied to me about one key element so why the hell should i listen to the rest of it like i mean that's fair but ultimately i think there's more to the story than than even if even if it came to light that some of the other things are you know false lies i think there's more to it than that and i think you know and i think you of all people know that too yeah but i mean i also understand the knee-jerk reaction to want to go like no you lied to me once. How, like everything that you've said previous to this is now in question because that's true. Yeah. You know, just in general. And it, 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 it confuses me that he seemed to be gaining so very little from the lies that he was telling. But there are there, there are thing, things that we will obviously get into. There are just so many things in the book where it's like, Woody, that's not true. Like, we know that that's not true, Woody, and uh, but you said it like it was true. And so now there's mud all over everything else. And that's just that's very difficult. You're either going to be very glad you invited me on or you're going to be sorry you invited me on because I'm going to carve out a um, much more complex theory about this book before it's all said and done. Please go for it. Uh, but I will definitely say that at the beginning here at this at this break. At this point in, in the story, I'm on board uh, with the story as is. This is probably about where the face value acceptance of Woody's story ends. But uh, this part I'm definitely on board for, in part because this is 1966. And mm -hmm. uh, just having, you know, it, it's basically, a, it's, it, nowadays it's a Hollywood trope that, that you know, you're driving down a dark road, a, a, a UFO pulls in front of your car, kills your engine, 
and you have some kind of communication. Well, it wasn't a trope in 1966. I mean, that, that was that has really developed since then. Uh, so, but the fact that it really follows uh, along with that story, I mean, it, it sounds like an early version of exactly the same thing we hear over and over. I mean, to the point where you see it in movies. So mm-hmm. I believe that. Um, when Nick said that there's other witnesses who saw the same saucer that night, mm-hmm. um, they they had this in the same area. They didn't see Woody, but they had some visual confirmation of the same something was going on in the sky. Um, and also, I would the, the thing that I really struck me here at the beginning is how casually we all accept the notion that the alien spoke that Indrid spoke in telepathy. Mm-hmm. And my thought was that that you know. The average skeptic is going to say, "Well, stop right there. Telepathy is not real." So that's just, it's all the whole story is bogus at that point. Well, I can I I brought stories. If you want me to tell stories, um, I have a personal experience of telepathy, so I'm going to I'm going to tell this story. Go for it. Do uh, it. Yeah. So so back in the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, which is probably before any of you were born. I don't know, but I was a college age kid, and I was a I was a one of four, a group of guys who uh, got together every weekend for about a month and did magic mushrooms together and, and uh, experimented. We took it very seriously. We had a, we had a control person there who stayed sober and, and took notes and observed everything, made sure nobody jumped out of a window or anything crazy. <laughs> we call um, that a trip we, sitter. Yeah, a trip sitter. And we try to try to take it as a, a scientific endeavor. You know, mm-hmm. Air quotes. You can't see my air quotes, but they're there. <laughs> um, so about the, we did this, four or five times in the course of a summer between some between years in college. And uh, about the second time we did this, the four of us were sitting in my apartment, probably about 15 feet apart. We were at, at like the cardinal points. We we're at the, cor- the corners of the living room. You know, like you call down the the, cor- the, the corners and that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, and we had, you know, all the set and setting. We had the incense going and the, the Pink Floyd playing on the stereo and all that kind of stuff. The things you do. Yeah. And, uh, all of a sudden, just just out of nowhere, it's like we just started having this four-way conversation, the four of us, we, and it was really fast. And we were all like, we would as we would make eye contact, and the words would just flash, and we would go back and forth. And just we had this four-way conversation, and we would laugh, and we were we were talking about all these amazing things, which I don't remember any of it now, however many years later. And uh, but we all wrote, we all had notebooks, and we were taking notes because we were this was a scientific study. And so we, we wrote down the things that we talked about. And so like the next day, we compared our notes and we had we had all had the same conversation. Um, and there were little differences here and there, but it was basically the same conversation. And we all participated in it. And our control person there said, told us flat out, we never spoke a word. None of us ever spoke a word. We didn't even move. We all sat in our cardinal corners and looked like, like stone statues while we were having this conversation. It went on for probably 30, 40 minutes. So I, I have that personal experience of, of telepathy. So I'm not at all skeptical that that can happen. Now, can I have I done that since? No. Do you think I could do that without a little psilocybin boost? No, probably not. <laughs> but I know that the brain is capable of that because I've experienced it myself. Fascinating. And I mean, there are other, uh, there's tons and tons of studies out there about uh, things like telepathy and telekinesis and different other psi, like psi, like psi abilities um, that 
that coincide right along with it of saying like, no, this is something that is documented as having happened. Like it's this happens so much know? so to the point that it is an element in mediumship research yep. that they have to exclude as a possibility. Like they have to find a way to prove that it's not just telepathy occurring because that is already accepted to a degree within a lot of scientific circles. Right. Which and I mean, no, then it makes sense to me that something like psilocybin would help enhance that because like so many other like so like so many other researchers in terms of, you know, trying and seeing that like there's uh, a connection, be it to psychedelics and tapping into that, whatever that next level of consciousness might be um, that I know I obsessively talk uh, talk about on this show, but it is probably the most fascinating thing to me. And I don't doubt for a second that something like psilocybin gets you there because I'm, I've done mushrooms too. I haven't had any experiences like that. Mine were a lot more. Uh, less scientific. Yeah. They were a lot <laughs> less scientific. Uh, they, they, I mean, it, I, I would definitely, uh, you know, in, I'll say I would love to try it uh, in a, from a scientific perspective now, you know. Yep. We were all like 20 years old. You know, we were, I don't suppose we were actually all that scientific. We just thought we were. Can you imagine being that poor trip sitter, just sitting there, just watching these four people staring at each other intensely? I, I have no idea what's happening. I would think I was seconds away from being murdered by a hive mind. Like, <laughs> and they're just going to get up and swarm me. That's what I would be thinking the whole time. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> no, and you know, I, I, it's funny. It's I, because I kind of accept telepathy so willingly like even though i've never experienced it myself i i've seen and read so much that's like yep telepathy is a thing that i just don't even think about it so i actually i'm actually really glad that you brought that up because there are probably people who are going to listen to this who are going to be like telepathy is bullshit right you know well and the, you know that again that's a i guess a good check on no matter who you are and how hard you try unconscious bias will always slip through in terms of what you notice or what you don't because by this point in the show we've how many things have we read where it's talked about the realities of telepathy right. and so it, at this point it's kind of ingrained into our group think that yeah no that's a thing that can happen yeah we're, we're doing a whole book in a couple of months about twin telepathy True yeah that. i mean but, but also i mean it's so common in the experiencer narrative. Uh, it's all over it again and again and again, not just that they talk to you tele telepathically, but this whole idea that the issue with humanity is that our language is, uh, I guess, too clunky, too vague. And we, we have too many differences between the different languages that we can't really communicate properly. So all this hatred and violence that consumes our planet comes about because of that. Mm -hmm. And that telepathy would be the cure because we would have this perfect understanding of everyone else around us. Well, what what? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that leads uh, um, autistic adults to struggle the most in social and professional settings is the fact that we tend to be very direct. We say exactly what we're thinking, and that's apparently rude. And it doesn't matter how many times it's explained to us that, no, that's rude. You need to kind of sidestep and go at things from different angles. And it's like, but why don't you guys get confused all the time talking to each other? It's like, yes. And that's a fundamental part of society. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, um, I had like an uh, like the opposite thought when it comes to telepathy than what 
like at first than what like Woody talks about in this book. Like I don't necessarily like at first I wasn't like, yeah, if we could all communicate to each other telepathically, that would absolutely make it easier. No, I went if people started being able to communicate exactly what they were thinking, wars would break out. I mean, maybe absolutely. I, 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 I guess, I guess the utopian in me hope would hope that it's like somehow you would feel the basic humanity of those around us, but it could also be, I feel your frailties. Well, I think the only way to actually get to that point, even with telepathy is to actually get outside of that, the get outside of the group think of I and more into the sociological we structure where we're looking at the looking at not what we can do for ourselves, but what we can do for a society. And until we actually build an actual working society, in my opinion, uh, even telepathy or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, think about those true crime books that Jay reads. Do you really want to read that guy's mind? Exactly. And yeah. see, that's a really good point. I mean, the, the thing that sickens me <laughs> is the answer is yes, but not for, <laughs> not for good reasons, not for reasons that will enrich me or my soul or my life in any way. Um, I just I just want to hear about how this guy thinks through basic math problems because I just, everything else about him is just topsy turvy. I just think it'd be good it'd be good it'd be more good fodder to shove into my writing. I mean, that's true. <laughs> it yeah. absolutely would. I just want my questions answered. My questions that will in no way benefit humanity. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it might make it worse. Actively worse. All right. Let's keep on going. I, I don't like that you said it that way, but okay. Back to Mr. Derenberger. I'm trying to bring the energy, Nick. Whoa, too much anger. So word got out of Woody's story, <laughs> as it does in the 1960s. A local news station, WTAP-TV, reached out to Woody, and he agreed to go on and tell his story. He went to the station and was met by station personnel, a reporter, Sergeant Plum of the Parkersburg Police, and Sergeant Vandeveer of the State Police, as well as an Air Force sergeant, unnamed. They proceeded to question him for three and a half hours. This, I believe, is what resulted in the Woody Derenberger tapes, which is on YouTube. When he was finally released and able to go home, he was surprised to find several friends and a large group of strangers at his house. Most of them just wanted to hear his story or share their own sightings of the same ship. Woody talked to these people until around 2.30 in the morning, when he finally asked them to leave as he had to work the following day. He's a lot nicer than me. The next day was November 4th, 1966, the day of second contact. He was driving with a friend from Parkersburg, Ohio, when Cold told him, via telepathy, that Cold ship was trailing his car from high above. Here, Cold revealed some information to Woody. Maybe to gather some trust, maybe just for fun, who knows. But here's where Cold told Woody that he was from the planet called Lanulos in the galaxy of Ganymede. Woody, however, believes that this was a lie to protect Cold's people. Lanulos was described much like Earth. Cold was married to a woman named Kimmy, had two sons, ages 8 and 11. Later on, Cold would add a little girl to his family as well named Kimmy Liss. Lanulos, unlike Earth, only has three seasons, planting, harvesting, and cold. The people of Lanulos lived to be about 150 to 175 years old. He also revealed here that his first name was Indrid. Cold then told Woody he was going to break contact, upon which he would feel a severe shock. However, when contact was broken, Woody did not feel this shock, but rather felt exhilarated, with a slight throbbing pain in his right temple. <laughs> 
That's where the tumor was growing. That sounds like a shock. Woody, maybe after all the commotion of the first contact, decided at the time that maybe it was better off that he didn't tell anyone about this second contact. He did, however, reveal it to NICAP later on. NICAP, for those that don't know, is National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon in Washington, D.C. Which is important to note is not a government program. Correct. It was a civilian group that uh, acted like they were a government program. Similar to like MUFON. Yeah, similar. They were an early MUFON equivalent. Now, during this time, the local news story was picked up by more and more media outlets, and his phone began to ring off the hook. The story was picked up by some papers such as UPI, the United Press International, and the Associated Press, which, by their nature, spread Woody's story worldwide. This turned the nighttime visitors at the Derenberger household from a small gathering to a goddamn fiasco. His wife, Catherine, became more and more terrified, both of the ships and the strangers that continued to show up on their front doorstep. At this point, 25 to 30 people would come nightly. In an attempt to handle them, Woody would invite them in, serve them cookies and coffee, and speak with them until 3 or 4 a.m. most nights. This quickly got out of hand, and soon people were parking on his lawn, and the crowd was growing to sizes of 150 people. All this commotion, infamy, or popularity, however you want to look at it, it trickled down to affect his kids as well. His son Charles was teased at school over Woody's story. Both him and their daughter Tanya began having nightmares due to the stress of all the people outside their home. Woody's work as a salesman was even compromised. Most people recognized him due to the story in the papers or on the news, so when people wanted to bamboozle him into talking to them, they would set up sales calls with Woody and once he had driven sometimes as far as 40 miles to meet with them, would reveal their true intentions of just wanting to talk about his experience and not actually wanting to buy a thing. I'd be so angry. Dude, I'd be so pissed. I, 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 I would be livid. I wouldn't talk to him. No, I, I, I'd burn down their farm. <laughs> Soon the Derenbergers were forced to sell most of their furniture and move into a summer cabin that his wife's family owned. This didn't last because soon UFOs were spotted nearby the cabin, and in only a month's time, saucer chasers found Woody's new home, and the crowd started all over again. So they moved again, this time to Vienna, West Virginia. And that worked for a time, until again, someone found them and began pestering them for an interview. Eventually, this got to be too much for Woody's wife, and she left him and moved with the kids to Cleveland. Woody would follow eventually, but was unable to repair the marriage, and they divorced in 1970. Woody, however, did remarry. Now, I want to pause just real quick to put kind of a disclaimer out here. Uh, One thing about this book is that there's kind of a lack of structure. Hmm. Uh, Instead of telling the story in order, he kind of chunks the story out into chapters of the overall story. Uh, The first and second chapters being first and second contact, But from here forward, it's kind of a bit different, as you're going to see. He goes over some of the investigations into him and some that he did before we even get into details of his journey to Lanulos. So if all of that seems confusing, that's why. Because it's confusing. Yeah. After Christmas, 1966, Woody was visited by Captain Bruce Parsons. Parsons, a former Florida cop who once was the police chief in Parkersburg, was now working as a security guard for NASA. Parsons invited Woody and his family to come to NASA and tell their story to the head of NASA. 
Woody, being a man of sound intelligence, was not going to pass up an opportunity to speak with NASA. So he went and stayed in Florida for a week, during which he received an escorted tour of Cape Kennedy Base. After the tour, he was introduced to a man named Charlie, who was the, quote, head man at NASA. Charlie and others, I assume, proceeded to interrogate Woody for five days. Afterwards, they told Woody that he had not told them any information that they did not know already. They indicated the truth about aliens was not going to be released to the public to prevent catastrophic panic. According to Woody, some events that would take place in this panic were, quote, women would commit suicide, throw babies out of windows, or jump under trains. Later on, an investigator named Harold Salkin tried to verify this visit. NASA would only confirm that Woody had indeed visited, but no additional details as to what actually had happened during that visit. A NICAP team also investigated this, as well as interviewed the other people who had seen Cold Ship that night. They took months to publish their findings and seemed intent to ridicule and downplay all of it, according to Woody. The NICAP team hired a psychiatrist, Robert A. Jenkins, to examine Woody's mental health. He was examined for epilepsy. He was given an EEG to attempt to detect abnormalities in his brain, which is also the same test used to detect epilepsy. Uh, when the test results came back saying that he was healthy and sane, NICAP refused to release those results to the public. Though somehow there are copies of these reports and more in this book with no real explanation as to how Woody had gotten them himself. But Woody would not be deterred. He continued to go on to different talk radio shows to tell his story. During one, a young man named Ed called in and told him that he had also been to Lanulos. He gave his number to Woody, off the air I hope, and Woody called him later. When he did go and visit Ed, he brought John Keel and Harold Salkin of Saki, S-A-C-I, with him, and Saki is Space Age Communications Incorporated, of which I can find no record of online of any company by that name that has anything to do with UFOs, just a telecommunications company that was formed in the 90s. Huh. So that's a little bit of information to chew on. What does it mean? I don't know. In preparation for the interview, Salkin asked what they could ask to try and verify Ed's story. Woody said that if Ed mentioned a flying pleasure craft resembling a magic carpet or sled then his story was true, as that is not a detail that Woody had told anyone, including us, the readers, at the time. <laughs> During the interview, Ed, who is described as a serious-minded college student, told them that he had been stopped on the road one night, just like Woody. Ed was later contacted again when he was in a restaurant where he was working as a part-time waiter. One night while going home, he was stopped by the visitor he had previously spoken with, a person by the name of Vadig. Vadig asked Ed if he wanted to take a ride in a spaceship, and Ed agreed. He was then taken to Lanulos, and Ed described the planet, atmosphere, the buildings, and the flying carpet sled-like crafts, all of these things the same as Woody had seen them. Woody believes that these consistencies don't stop here, but rather that many contactees have bits of a larger picture which authorities refuse to put together, or, if they have, are suppressing them from the public for reasons that Woody disagrees with. He argues that the everyone would panic excuse for the cover-up is bunk 
and cites things like photos of the moon that the government won't release and how in 1958 the Air Force tried to suppress a science fiction story by Ray Palmer because, according to Woody, the story was too close to the truth. So let's stop here for a second. And this is discussion question two. Cool. Discussion question two. In this part of the book, Woody takes the time to talk about the government's response to UFOs at the time and the overall cover-up. Now, we know from many other books that we have talked about on this show that, in a way, Woody is right here. Project Blue Book, for example, was meant to try and water down and debunk UFO sightings. In Flying Saucers Over the White House, we saw how the Air Force fumbles to try and explain away the unexplainable with science that really doesn't actually make sense. So. So what do you think of Woody's assessment here? He seems to think, based on this interview with NASA at least, that the government knows a lot more than they let on, including that there are visitors from Lanulos. Do you think he's right to scold the government for locking away this information? And do you think the government actually knows more than they are letting on about places like Lanulos? Um, in, in one word, yeah, uh... Yeah, I I think I think they know more. And I I do think that the that the the line of well people would panic, I don't I don't think that's the full reasoning because it's not it's not a good enough reason to be the only one. Um I personally every time I I read that people will panic thing, the first thing that pops into my mind is okay, who is people? Right. Like, yeah, I don't think the most people going to work every day. It's not those people. Yeah. It's the people who are invested in the current paradigm of how society works. Yeah. I, I see it as kind of a cop out excuse. Yeah. So I, I, this is where I start to develop my dark theory. <laughs> okay. Um, and then we'll start with panic. Um, I, I was doing the math on it in 1966. Um, is only 28 years later after the panic of the uh, Orson Welles of War of the Worlds radio broadcast. That was 1938. So we're only talking 28 years later. And I thought, and that was a genuine panic and people mm-hmm. really did do some crazy things. Um, so that's when you're thinking of, of, about a military person in 1966, it's not unreasonable to think that people might panic. I think it's a little sexist to say that only women are going to throw their babies out the window. Um, I throw my baby out the window. Men, the men are going to be all brave and strong. And that's that's a little nonsensical. But um, it's not unreasonable, I think, in 1966 to think of panic. And also, um, that was the, the heart of the Cold War. So uh, people were already on the verge of panic all the time. They were, the, the, While everybody talks about looking at the skies for, for flying saucers, they were also looking at the skies for nuclear missiles. True. Because everybody was very concerned about that. Um, my parents have stories about, you know, bomb shelters and then storing water in case there was a nuclear war and all these crazy things. Um, so that's not necessarily an unreasonable thing. Um, I think another part of it that that might be, that might be, I'm just projecting into the story here and turning it around a little bit, but it occurs to me that that maybe the person who's been lying in this story is not Woody, but it's Indrid Cold. And Perhaps uh, what the military knows and what the government knows and doesn't want to share is that the space people are not here for a good reason. Um, perhaps we're dinner or something like that. Perhaps we're on their menu and, and they know that people would, in fact, panic 
if uh, they told the truth about the flying saucers. So that's possible. And there was a whole thread of that in the, the flying saucer literature of the 60s and into the 70s. Mm. Um, but uh, it seems to me that that it would be that would be a natural thing to think of. And, and I think also, this is where I started to think about um, what Woody said, or Woody's suspicion that they were lying about coming from Ganymede. He said, so Woody says, as you read it, that the Keith suspects that that was a lie to protect Cold's people. Right. From what exactly? Call protect them from what? People that hadn't even landed on the moon yet. We were going to travel across the the universe and and cause some trouble for them. So that's probably not it. But uh, if that was a, a serious intuition, that got me thinking about nobody else but John Keel. Um, what if the what if their concern is what if the the Indrid Cold and his people, their concern is is uh, understandable because they're not nearly so far away as another planet, but they're actually here. Um, and and then we start getting the idea of John Keel's ultra terrestrials and mm-hmm. non people and and uh, the the thing that connects all the psychic and paranormal things together and this intelligence that's behind physical reality, behind obvious reality, it has the power to manifest physically, it has the power to appear however it wants to appear or however you want it to appear. Um, and so we get into this whole sort of mixed idea that that maybe uh, Woody Ehrenberger is having a real experience, but he's putting his own sort of uh, goofy salesman spin on it. And he's he's a good hearted guy who is like he wants them to be Christians and he wants them to be nudists and he which we'll bring up later, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. He wants them, oh, yes. He wants them to be like like a, a perfect socialist, happy society. Um but that might all be coming from Woody. But that doesn't mean that the story isn't true. It doesn't mean that that he's not having some kind of an encounter. And it's entirely possible that the military knows exactly what he is up against there. So that's one that's one possible dark version. That's actually really that's really interesting because I, I hadn't thought about it from a perspective of the ultra terrestrials, which is hilarious because we talk about really. Yeah, I know. I know. But that got my brain thinking like, okay, you're you're right. What what if like in that scenario he was projecting his own kind of thoughts and what he could fathom into what was happening and really all of the travel that he does, he's like note how would I and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but note how quick you know this happens and we're talking like you know million some in the light years of, of of potential distance in terms of actual like if we were thinking nuts and bolts but what if instead of that it was just that was the portrayal that that woody had because that's what his what he could accept but really what was happening is just traveling between different dimensions or or what if he i mean there's also you gotta remember like think about like john mack abduction experiences that we read about there are some people who went through an entire alien abduction experience and never left their bedroom. How right. do we know these events actually happened to him physically? Right. Uh, how do we know they weren't images that were projected into his mind? Or if uh, let's let's go even stranger. Uh, what if there is some sort of uh, participatory element to the phenomenon in that what he saw Lanulos, the reason we got these ideal this idealized christian planet of nudists is because the (laughs) whatever the intelligence was was projecting a certain message to woody and then it entered into his cultural filter 
Right. And so what we saw there was maybe half of what they intended, which may have been lies, and half of what was already cooking in his brain. Right. You know, they did put him in that weird shower thing before they let him go down to Landulos. shower, yeah. yeah and, and maybe him a shot. Yeah. That was in that shot. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. It's like, maybe they just drugged him to shit and like he <laughs> actually didn't ever leave the ship. He was just like lying on a cot, drooling as they took his shoes. Turns out he was tripping on a, on a pure dose of straight psilocybin right into his veins. So this guy's going to see the nude Christian colony? Yeah, that's what that's what he's going to see. Get his fillings. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it just a different drug for each of Duck D? Like the doctor who saw the glowing raccoon, give him some ketamine. <laughs> just pump him full of it. Remember, they can't have a consistent narrative. Otherwise, they will unite. And the ones that are getting pissing them off they just slap on two lsd strips and call it a day. i, I want to be the, i want to be the official alien uh drugger like <laughs> just making up cocktails all right well, i'm gonna give this guy some ketamine i'm gonna sprinkle some bath salts on his nose for fun no 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 <laughs> brains today please <laughs> um i was gonna i was gonna throw in here also and uh talking about well when, when keel talks about ultra-terrestrials and and the non-people one of the things he, he talks about, which I think is really true, um, and from my own experience, that this kind of intelligence has the ability to sort of to manifest physically and actually be there or sort of semi-physically. So mm-hmm. it's not even all necessarily a hallucination in your mind. And that goes into what was in this uh, the passage you read about how uh, Woody could call the saucers and, and mm-hmm. people would say, oh, we want to see saucers. And he could like, Hey, Indrid, bring in your saucer, and they would they would appear. Or, or when he moved to the cabin on the, the vacation cabin, they they found him. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually has a long history of of people who are in that sort of space. Once people get into that space where they're they're themselves half in and half out of this other world, they're constantly communicating with this other world, this ultra terrestrial realm that they can call them. There's a, a story I heard recently on a podcast, and I can't even remember where. Um, about the 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 guy who was is famous for the the earliest Loch Ness monster photographs back in in like the 30s had was taking these photographs that were this the world was amazed at these photographs and he had the he did the exact same thing he would people would gather at his house in in large crowds and he would call Nessie out of the out of the lake and Nessie would appear and they would all see it that's, now if you that's amazing were, were flying over in a, a drone and, and looking down you might not see it but everyone in that group did or you think of like the the marian apparitions um where you know everyone sees the sun going around and around and around in the sky you know but would it would it photograph would it be on a film i don't know but lots and lots of people see it it's like once once a person a charismatic person um even someone questionably charismatic like woody Derenberg, uh, once they enter that space, once they've got their they're sort of in between the worlds and they've passed through that that sort of thin place and they're they're communicating with this other realm, they can bring other people into it. They can change other people's perception around them. So it really becomes some of the more outrageous uh, things in this book. You think, well, is it, if he can if he can cause other people to see it as well. Is it real? Is it not real? How real is it? Is it half real, semi-real? Well, it, it calls to the liminal nature of all of this, you know, and we, we've talked about exactly. this uh, a, whole, a whole bunch on the show where uh, there, are, there are sightings in which there are, you know, let's say five people all standing next to each other, three people see a UFO, two don't. You know, why? You know, why? Right. We don't really, we don't really know. 
John Tenney even told us a story uh, about that where him and one other girl on a crowded street mm-hmm. saw a UFO, but no one else did. And they couldn't figure out why no one would look up. Yeah. And it, and I, I think, you know, I, I think there's a lot of factors that potentially come into play with that. And I think one thing that we can look at with this um, is where, you know, where each individual person is. Now, I think we've talked about this before, but one of the things that's, uh, that blows my mind about the human brain is actually knowing how much data the human brain is processing at any one time. And it's millions, millions of different points of data. And we only actually like recognize at like 40 or so at any one point in time, the rest of it is happening in our subconscious. Um, and that makes me say, well, what if it is, what if like for some people, it's just that filter, whatever our brain is doing is allowing this through because of X, Y, Z, like we're, we're more open to it. We're more, um, you know, uh, we're at a different state of our natural consciousness. I, I, I don't know. I like the idea of it being like based on where you are on the scale of consciousness, but now just to, uh, oh, cir- yeah. just to circle back a little, Jack, to something you said that, uh, that I latched upon is that the whole idea is if they do come from, I know, uh, like Eric Davis calls it the shadow biomes or whatever, this parallel other place that is here, but not here in that liminal space, uh, them coming from there actually solves one of the primary problems I had with kind of the character of Indrid Cold being that he has a wife and children. Presumably he has a job because everyone on Lanulos has a job. Mm-hmm. They'll give it to you. And but he had time to at the drop of the hat fly across the galaxy whenever Woody wanted to see him. It, it doesn't really match up. You know what I mean? Like he should have, there should have been times where it's like, I'm sorry, I can't, I have to go to my child's ballet recital there. Right. There wasn't a real sense of a life lived when Woody wasn't in Indrid's presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. There were holes in that story. Yeah. yeah. I, I noticed that Woody it talks about how Woody lost his income because, you know, it, he was so so famous and everybody just want to talk about this and people went and buy from him. He lost all his income and they moved to this cabin all that. And yet they seem to have a lot of money. They seem to have money coming from somewhere because they kept moving and they kept buying right. new houses and moving. Oh, well, let's move over here. Let's move over there. It's like, where are you getting the down payment for these houses if you're moving around all the time? So that's a good a question. Point. There. That, that is a good point. I mean, so that that begs into question how much of the the his income was actually as lost or where else was or where was he getting additional money from? Right. It wasn't coming from sales of the book. That's for sure. How far back into property records can you look, Rory? All the way. Might be worth looking at that a little later. Uh-huh. Might be. Maybe maybe they've listed their income on there. I mean, you could too. It just don't cost you money. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, I would like to not spend the money when you're right there. <laughs> we have discovered Woodrow Derenberger's secret Canadian mansion made entirely out of Prada bags and gold. <laughs> I I have so many questions because I don't think Prada existed then. I I have so many questions now. I'm not going to Google when Prada was formed. I don't care. That goes on your permanent record if you Google it. Uh, <laughs> when was when was no, I certainly don't want that. Our permanent records have been ruined ever since I searched for human mold. I the, my my I mean we're on a watch list just from our Google search history because of what we do for this show. Yeah. Yeah, also, you know, there's more than one copy of Catcher in the Rye in this house, so we're all already on the NSA watch list. Is there? Yeah. Do you own multiple copies? I do own multiple copies okay. entirely by accident, well, but yes, I do own multiple copies of Catcher in the Rye. 
Yeah, I'll see you. I, there's communist. one in the room I'm sitting in too. So there. You yeah, go. Oh. yeah, we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I think a couple more, and we'll be able to complete the pentagram of Hayden Caulfield. <laughs> um, there's an there's an NSA agent watching the Zoom call right now. We'll be able to summon the crappy 15 year old. <laughs> I I go back and never mind. We're not here to talk about a catcher in the rye. No. No, visitors from Lanulos. Oh, so, yeah, by the way, to answer your question, yes, I think the government knows more. And I don't think that that is a belief thing. I think that's a fact thing at this point, considering we've now had multiple, 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 multiple members of the government tell us that. Yeah, but do you, uh, I guess the, the heart of my question and what I'm most curious about uh, of, of all of your guys' opinions, do you think it go like they are more becoming more and more willing to admit that they know about UFOs? Yeah. Do you think it goes as far to say that they know that they we have been visited by people from other planet, planets and we have knowledge of what those other planets are like Woody's claiming? I think it's I, I don't know. I can't say yes to that part. What I can say is I think they do know more. And the reason I have to stress that is, again, like we we're talking, what if they're not from a planet right. and them saying you didn't tell us anything we didn't already know is them just finding a way to send Woody off with this narrative that they know isn't right because the true narrative might be too strange and they ha- can't figure out how to tell it to the American people. That's fair. That's uh, fair. You know, and I think that is also a possibility whenever we're talking about disclosure is what if, you know, what if the weirdest option is true? How do you break that to the average person who has done no reading into this topic? Well, and I think the scary truth is that there would be a level of panic that comes with that. Um, actually, I believe it was you that recommended us to watch uh, that w- that one movie, Shoot Jack. Uh, oh yeah, uh, and that so that that and that haunts me. What was that called? Uh, yeah, I don't. I can't remember off the top of my head either. Jason Segal. Segal. The Discovery. The discovery. Yes. That was it. Yeah. The discovery. The discovery. Yeah. With, with Jason so, Segal and Robert Redford. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so it makes me think of stuff like that, right? Like that movie is obviously talking about the afterlife, but even go going so far as saying, yeah, we're being visited from other entities from another plane of existence or w- whatever it might be. Uh, I, that, I do think that that would cause a level of panic that could lead to events like that. Could if it's not handled appropriately or okay. if if the society is not ready for that kind of knowledge. So I, I also do want to really quickly point out before we throw out uh, before we go on is uh, I am not convinced Charlie exists. Charlie, the head of NASA. And if he does, I don't think he's the head of NASA. I think he was. I think Charlie might have existed and it was just some dude. Who said, hi, I'm the head of NASA. I'm going to interrogate you for the next five days of your vacation. Yeah. Can you imagine like after Woody walks out, NASA's just like, what was the janitor doing to that man? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, yeah, that was not an officially sanctioned interview at all. We are so sorry, Mr. Derenberger. Uh, He stole your social security number. Uh, We (laughs) don't know how. You think they'd apologize. That's funny. NASA might apologize. The CIA wouldn't, but (laughs) NASA might. They're polite nerds. I think another angle on the the secrecy thing or the cover-up is that I think our our government, certainly, the United States government, would be very concerned, and probably all world governments, would be very concerned not only that UFOs exist, but who controls them, whose side are, which country Mm -hmm. is their guy. And that's that's kind of a deal. So they're not going to reveal this as a real thing at all, while that might give advantage to the Russians or the Chinese or or whoever. And uh, 
So the fact that they're starting to disclose some of this, and we're starting to see those those Navy videos that came out, and mm-hmm. uh, some of the disclosure possibly hints that either the country, some of the countries of the world have started to come together on this and, and behind the scenes and maybe have some kind of a plan for dealing with it, or that uh, the aliens have chosen sides and now <laughs> they're willing to come forward with this because the U.S. feels confident that they're in charge. Um, none of that is a good thing necessarily. No, 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 no. I think probably the scariest thing outside of they're here to invade and eat us yeah. would be they've picked, they've chosen sides. Yeah, no, that, that would, would be terrifying. That would be, that would be, that's, that's worst case. Even if they, even if they chose our side, yeah. like, you know, chose America, that's still not good. Especially uh, in the shape that we're in right now, in my personal yeah. opinion. And, re- and remember when those videos started coming out from the Navy, it's like they've chosen Trump. Holy cow. Yeah, right. Oh. No. That would be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Oh, please. Nazis from space. I don't want to I don't want to live in that world. What yeah. if what if like the 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 quote unquote side they've chosen is just like they say a name that none of us can pronounce and it's like what the hell is that? It's just one uncontacted tribe in the southernmost part <laughs> of the Amazon and they're just like those are the only ones. There's the only ones we actively like. Or they go, no, we picked a side. We picked the side of the reptilians. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's likely. Is that it, would be Trump again. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, imagine, imagine if it was just, what if, what if it wasn't a people? It was just an individual. We've chosen to side with Jeff. He's in charge now. And then it's just my father (laughs) looking furious because aliens hauled him out of his house. Aliens are both real and have put you in charge of the planet. Congratulations. (laughs) Oh, God, he would hate that so much. (laughs) (laughs) They They would hand him papers about just like, Jeffrey, you need to make a decision about the climate crisis. He's like, this isn't my job. I don't understand any of this. So I do have one quick quote before we move into part three here. Go for Uh, it. This is from John Keel. And it's actually, I don't know, it just kind of felt relevant with our conversation about government cover-ups. Quote, on the other hand, if the ETists, proponents of the extraterrestrial hypothesis are right, if UFOs are real machines from some other planet, then the historical record suggests only one proper avenue of approach. This subject is a matter exclusively for a highly trained, highly secret group of intelligence agencies and not a matter for amateur investigators. If UFOs are real, then the situation is so grave that all amateur groups should be ruthlessly crushed. All UFO news should be censored and the general population should be kept in total ignorance as long as possible. That's very key, Alaska. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It is. You can't handle it. I can. You can't. Someone has to hold the line. (laughs) And by hold the line, I mean hold this electric fence with my feet in a puddle and I want to see how long I can cling to it before my heart stops. It's still my favorite story in the book is John Keel getting chased by a bull. I, I'm just picturing him doing that thing where you're trying to run and stand up at the same time and his feet are just sliding out from under him because of the mud. Meanwhile, there's this bull just trotting up behind him like, gonna get you, John. <laughs> gonna get you, John. All right. Going back in time. To when Woody was living in Mineral Wells, he came home one cold night to find that the normal crowd of people around his house had turned in early. He parked by the side of his house, and as soon as he opened the door, heard the voice of Indrid Cold say, Don't be frightened, Woody. It is Indrid and my friend Carl. They were waiting on Woody's back porch, 
He had invited them into the house, but they refused because they didn't want to wake up Woody's family. So Woody sat outside on the back porch and talked with them for two hours. During this time, they told him of their home, how they never had war on their world and could not understand hatred. They were taught from birth that all people are brothers and sisters, regardless of their origins, and that they were all God's children. They believe that there is only one God, creator of all, and that this God loves one as much as all without discrimination. They believe that man's sole purpose is to serve God and help one another. They told Woody that those of Lanulos are not smarter than humanity. Rather, they have just had more time to research and develop technology, and that they love in harmony and serve God. Woody tried to explain how life was here on earth, and Indrid and Carl were baffled by the plurality of religions and wars. Woody then asked them if they knew why humanity lived in fear and hatred. They responded by saying it was our inability to communicate with each other, The words alone were not enough, that we need to show that we care, even though they themselves don't understand hatred and war. He's a pathological liar, put it simply. <laughs> Indrid told him that the people of Lanulos have telepathy, so they can understand each other much better. He even claims that everyone here on Earth can be telepathic, and even explained it to Woody, who did his best to put it in writing. Naturally, Indrid and Carl taught Woody to do this, and Woody, like Indrid, believes that everyone on Earth can learn this too. He believes that evolving this form of communication would end all wars and hatred, as it will open up channels of true understanding between us all. Now, even Indrid's people did not always have this gift. According to a legend told from Indrid to Woody, and now Woody to us, a spaceship, at some point, came from Earth and crash-landed on Lanulos. Two occupants, one male and one female, began trying to fix the craft. They worked at this for years and years, and eventually they began to fight about how best to fix the ship. This disagreement caused them to go their own separate ways, and the ship was never repaired. They tried to make a living farming with their families, but eventually grew lonely and missed their friends. The problem being that they had no idea where the other family had settled and had no means of communicating with them. According to the legend, their wishes to communicate with their distant friends grew so intense that one man realized that he was hearing the thoughts of a man that he had been friends with before the split. These thoughts eventually drew them back together, so they gave thanks to God and set out to spread the knowledge of this new ability. Indrid and Carl also informed Woody that their world is led by the Guiding Council, which is made up of representatives from different allied worlds in the intergalactic circle. These representatives are elected by popular vote, and all of these planets share any new developments with each other, and they offer assistance in helping other planets overcome new struggles. After they were done talking, they invited Woody to come on their ship. Woody, still hesitant at this time, refused, but did walk them back to their ship and watch it take off. Two days later, Indrid and Carl were waiting for Woody again when he got home from work. After talking for a while, they once again asked Woody if he would like to come on their ship. This time, Woody agreed, and he got a tour of their spaceship, where he mostly played around with the mechanism to open and shut the door. He really liked that door button, and he seemed incredibly baffled as to how it worked. It was the only part of the ship we got a description of, and that drove me insane. 
Uh, You've seen the inside of a UFO. Tell me everything. That should be the whole book. Big blue button. Press it. Door open. (laughs) You know what's been sticking out in my mind? They never let me in the room where the power source was coming from, and I wouldn't have tolerated that shit. I would have been like, no, show me what's in there. I bet you anything it's a bunch of clown costumes and hatchets. (laughs) What are you going to do, Jay? What are you going to do to convince these aliens to let you get at the power source of their ship. I just want to look at it and confirm that it is indeed some sort of generator and not, again, clown costumes with hatchets. I mean, it's probably atomic based based on other things that they say later in the book. Yeah. Do you know? Do you would you know what you're looking at? I. That's beside <laughs> the point. <laughs> I, so after he left the ship, Indrid told him that if he wanted to, they would take him on a ride on the ship soon. Now, at an undisclosed time later, he was driving home when he got his telepathic invite to ride on the ship. He was somewhere along Route 21 between Ohio and West Virginia, and Indrid said that they were nearby. Via telepathy, Indrid told Woody where to turn off the highway and guided him to the ship. Once found, he went inside and was given the offer to see anywhere on Earth that he wanted to go. So he chose the Amazon jungle. When the ship moved, there was a continuous vibration that made Woody a tad bit nauseated. When asked about this, Indrid said it was simply the power and that they could not control it, but that they have become so accustomed to it that it doesn't bother them. Good for them. Next time, Woody will have to remember his Dramamine. It's a lifesaver. Yeah, it really is. When they reached the Amazon jungle, the ship slowed and opened up some portholes so that Woody could look out at the towns and villages along the Amazon. They did not remain there very long, and when they left, they went directly upward and out of the Earth's atmosphere until they were about 600 miles away from the moon. There, parked, and just hanging out, was the flagship of Lanulos, or what Woody calls the mothership. They docked to the ship, exited, and took Woody to meet the commander, who introduced Woody to the rest of the staff. This ship was huge, as big or bigger than a football field and at least eight or nine stories tall. It was bigger than anything Woody could fathom could fly at the time. On the ship, he was fed lanulose vegetables that were like potatoes and green beans, and a meat that tasted like venison and was called ketuma. He was then taken to see the surface of the moon. I assume by the way of the mothership, but that is not really clear in the book. On the surface of the moon, he claims to have seen large craters, huge rocky cliffs. He saw a huge bridge that went across a great gulf or gully that went into a big cavern. In this cavern is where other ships were parked, or so he was told. Now, they didn't stay on the moon long. The portholes soon closed, and they were speeding away again, this time to what we on Earth call Saturn. According to Woody, Saturn, the gas giant named after the Roman god of wealth and agriculture, is an agricultural world. There is no industry on the whole planet. Any machines or materials that are needed are shipped to the planet. Woody says that Saturn is shaped like a huge bowl with people living inside it, like a valley. Okay. The rim of the bowl is covered in ice, and the rings are simply rainbows from the sunlight shining over the ice. Okay. And from here, Indrid takes Woody directly to Lanulos. Indrid takes the ship close to the surface, but does not let Woody leave the ship at this time. Before he can visit the planet, he would have to get vaccinated so as not to bring disease to the planet and not take any diseases with him back to Earth. Which is fair. No, that's actually, that's actually completely reasonable. Mm-hmm. He did see many cities, fields, forests, streams, farms, and machinery. 
There were hundreds of people walking the city streets, and he even saw cars hovering and moving around with no wheels. The magic carpets that were mentioned earlier. That's the ones. At first, the Lanulosians that were on the ship with Woody feared him. They'd been studying the Earth since 1947 and still did not understand our way of life. After Woody spoke with them, their fears abated a bit, and they treated Woody with genuine love and respect. He was even told that he could, if he wanted, take his family and move to Lanulos, or any other planet if he so wished. If he did, he would be taught the ways of Lanulos and given a job. And here, we will go into discussion question number three. So this is our first glimpse of Lanulos. What are your thoughts now at this point in the story? According to Woody, not only is there a spaceship only 600 miles from the moon that we don't know about somehow, but that there is life on Saturn, Mars, Venus, and many other planets that we have no evidence of life on, or that these some of these planets can even sustain life as we know it. We also know that Saturn is not bull-shaped, that the rings which themselves are made of ice, dust, and rocky debris. So how does all of this affect his overall story for you? I think if you're looking at it from a nuts and bolts perspective, it is a, a damning problem with the narrative. Uh, although I do I do love the idea of a giant uh, planetary cereal bowl full of people <laughs> just waiting for Galactus to come along with a big spoon. Um, I, I loved that image. I loved a lot of the imagery of this section. But again, if you're going at from a purely nuts and bolts perspective, it's preposterous. It, it doesn't line up with what modern science tells us. Of course, we could have some things wrong, but I personally doubt that we missed that a planet is shaped like a bowl. Right. Um, and has farms and shit all over th it. That said, if we look at it from the ultra terrestrial perspective, this definitely feels very dreamlike. You know, I, I got a very almost like trippy dippy vibe. Like I could almost imagine this being a Pink Floyd music video. Yeah, it uh, does sound a bit like a, like an acid trip or something like that. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Uh, but yeah. They hadn't given him the shot yet, so we know it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's coming. No, I, I would I would throw in there that. Uh, the, the planets of our solar system being uh, being having humans on them, people who look just like us, who uh, visit the Earth, you know that 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 comes straight out of the classic contactee uh, ideal of really when you go back a couple decades back into the fifties, that was really what the where the, the contactee movement started, you know, and it even started and the thing is it even started before nineteen forty seven with flying saucers and you had people who were trans channeling space brothers from other planets as early as the mid 40s 43 44 45 um so none of this is unheard of and they all talked about they all contacted people from mars from mm -hmm. saturn from venus yeah um, george damsky in, in 1953 i believe you know, famously met orthon of venusian on the, the in the california desert and that launched his career as a contactee so this was a part of the the, the legend this was part of the story that that Woody's story fits right into and, and was probably pretty passe by 1966. But, you know, you drag along the baggage that, that you carry. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is that that if you go further back, and there, here we'll get into Jay's world of, of, of religion and spirituality, that uh, when you look at the, the Theosophical Society in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, you know, Theosophy is, 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 had knew nothing about flying saucers, but they definitely had um, part of there, there's a whole tradition within theosophy starting in around 1875, 1880, in that range, 
where people would would intentionally go on astral journeys to the other planets of the solar system Mm -hmm. and report back on the things they found there. There's whole books of the people that they met on Venus, the people that they that they talked to on Mars in an astral body, in an astral form. So you look at that and you say, well, okay, you're you're trying to justify this with theosophy, so maybe that's not going to work. But if you look at it from the other perspective, like like Nick was saying, that if if you look at the actual planets of the solar system from an ultra-terrestrial perspective, it's entirely possible that, I mean, if we, if we have invisible dimensions here, if we have invisible intelligences here, they surely have invisible dimensions and intelligences on Saturn and Mars and Jupiter as well. Mm-hmm. So when we look at these planets through a telescope through, with physical eyes and see the physical, when we look at the planets with what science is willing to accept, what we see is a, is a dead rock on most of them or a big ball of gas. Um, but that doesn't mean that's all that there is. Just like here, if you're thinking, if you're even considering an ultra terrestrial hypothesis here, even the, the, the larger concept, you're surrounded by another world, a fairy world, a, a, a ghostly world, uh, then why wouldn't the other planets be as well? So again, it's, it's not, not necessarily, he's, he's, he's interpreting everything physically. Right. right, because that's the way he's describing it, and that's probably the way he thinks of it. He's a little bit of a simpleton in some ways, um, but that doesn't mean that he didn't see what he saw. No, and that's that's a, that's another really valid point. Um, like thinking of it from, like Nick said, like from a nuts and bolts perspective, there this at this point in the story, you're throwing it out the window because from a nuts and bolts perspective and a, a full materialistic perspective, it's it, it it's it no, it no longer holds any water. It's um, cuckoo bananas, right? But thinking of it from uh, what I would even say is a more like, I don't know, phenomenon appropriate mentality, thinking of it in the ways that we don't necessarily, that we can't necessarily, you know, at this point um, measure, uh, it it does make a little bit more sense because that's a good point. If we have multiple layers to our reality here, then why why would we assume that that doesn't also happen on other planets and other areas of space? No, that makes complete sense in you know the weird, obscure way that all of this makes sense. So I think that's I think that's a really valid point, a really good point. I had a thought that I wanted to throw in here, uh, kind of going going way back to secret teachers of the Western world. Ah. Um, you know, thinking about that whole idea of an objective inner landscape, kind of the human collective unconsciousness mm-hmm. of that being a world. Uh, and there's a part of me that sometimes thinks, well, what what's to say that that is not where ultra terrestrials might come from? At least some of them. Some might come from other places. Some might come from, say, spring out of the shared unconsciousness like a tulpa. Mm-hmm. And thinking about these planets, I couldn't help but think about how like, you know, think go back to ancient Rome. The, the names of our planets were gods. Right. Uh, or and also you look into a lot of modern mystical practices. The planets are are more than just rocks in space. They have a distinct mystical purpose. They have, uh, you know, they have mystical uh, correlations and connections tied to them that are used in magical workings. I can't help but think, what if all of that attention to those things, all these magical rituals people do, all that worship that happened for eons uh, has not in some way either shaped or helped create new shadow biomes yeah. that these entities might come from. Yeah, we're from Venus, the one you guys made, dumbass. Right. 
That's 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 also a good point, and I'm surprised I didn't think of that as I'm sitting here surrounded by you know orbs and of different types of stone. To be completely fair, the only reason I thought of it is because today I was researching Saturnalia, ah. uh, which is a ancient Roman uh, Christmas. Basically, well, it, it's not Christmas, but it is a uh, where we get a lot of Christmas traditions from. It's one of the holidays that uh, got cannibalized. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was their midwinter festival. Yep, yep. Jay. Where's that clip of John Keel calling Darren Berger a pathological liar? He's a pathological liar. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely believe in alternate dimensions. I believe in other planes of reality. I believe in all of that stuff. But I, and it, it's probably just my own biases creeping through. I, I am struggling to believe. I'm struggling to believe Woody's story and I'm struggling to believe that he actually saw these specific things. Honestly, the only reason I mean, I'm right there with you to a degree, Jay. The only reason that I even stopped to look at the story deeper, other than the fact that, you know, uh, we were doing it for the podcast was because of the, you know, the whole fact that he never profited off this, that he it actually ruined his life. And that is messed up as that sound that adds credibility in my mind, just because I, yeah, because, you know, conversely, people who over uh, commercialize their experience, that reduces credibility in my eyes, yeah. uh, it, fairly or unfairly. Like, that's just my unconscious bias coming into play. I mean, on 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 that note, just, uh, I, I guess, play devil's advocate. I mean, he may not have benefited financially. But he was able to play the, you know, play the, the, the conference circuit. He was able to give lectures, which I'm sure he made money off of. Um, and there's tons of other and he got attention, which for a lot of people is good enough. Sure. You know, and I do feel the need to point out that, like, obviously, John Keel was not a psychiatrist, obviously. But pathological liar is one of those words like gaslight and a few others where people throw it around so often that a lot of people have forgotten what it means. Pathological liar means they can't help lying. They right. lie the, to, they lie for the same reasons that we breathe. They ge they genuinely feel a compulsion that they do not control and something becomes disconnected in their brain to the point where they begin believing their own lies because they've repeated it so often. Right. So if somebody is legitimate, uh, legitimately lying for a pathological reason, financial ruin and the collapse of their marriage and public ridicule are not going to stop them because they're getting something out of it that is happening completely internally. Right. I mean, that's that's another that's another really valid point to look at it from like a, the, the more mental health perspective like that, because while the doctors and psychologists or psychiatrists that uh, looked at him were looking at physical, like the physical things, they were looking for things like epilepsy and they said he had a clean bill of health in terms of his mental health. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not a pathological liar, you know, because you can be you can be perfectly sane and still be a kleptomaniac. You know, well, absolutely. It's part of the reason I don't know. Reading this, I, I kept thinking about Keel and how so many of his stories exist in that gray area between truth and fiction. I think there's a solid chance that might be true for Woody as well. Mm -hmm. and yeah. For different reasons. For Keel, it seemed to be because he did not believe that people could understand or handle the truth. 
Uh, for Woody, it could be. And again, I'd, we, we were talking about you know this idealized Christian society that he had some experiences. We don't know which ones were real, which ones weren't. But he then filled in gaps in that experience because a lot of experience, your stories, they're not as um, sequential as his is. They're much more, uh, you know, random. It almost seeming like they or they get chopped up. They have chunks of missing time. On some of them, it's once and done. Yeah. So he could I I could easily see a scenario where he filled in the gaps and created a story that in a way uh, enforced his existing worldview and or maybe gave what he went through some form of purpose because saying, well, hey, yes, I went through this weird stuff. But look, I've come back with this great message about a better way of life for my children. Right. And 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 that is I mean. Purpose is a powerful psychological need. Oh, absolutely. My last thought was just the the fact that, you know, like Jack pointed out, it's entirely possible that Woody saw something or experienced something that was manufactured for him. And it's Indrid. Indrid is the reason it doesn't make sense. Right. Entirely well, we're heading toward my other dark theory. We'll get there at the very end. <laughs> OK. That is involved. But I, in, in defense of, of, of Woody not being a pathological liar, I would throw in a couple of pieces of evidence. One is, is that uh, he lived a long time and he never recanted his story. He never right. changed his story. Even, even long after anybody was interested in it, he never changed it. His daughter, Tanya, um, continued his story after his death. And she, she's written a book about her continued contacts with Indrid Cold after, after, his, after her father's death. Um, she's adamant that it was all real and that Indrid Cold was a real person. Now, whether he was really from space or not, he was a real a real human being that she knew as a child mm-hmm. and he's um, so passed there's, away there's now. some argument in there so if because one thing about pathological liars i've known at least two in, in my life and they can't keep a story straight because they just pile lie upon lie upon lie and and what didn't do that so there's some argument there um i would say if i was going to posit anything at this point that was that was uh, a side view a side real view of his story i would say that um his whole story here, especially like the what he saw in Lanulos, his his religious views, his sense of, of everything, even even nudity, all this goes in there. Um, it all makes perfect sense if you look at this as a spiritual experience as mm-hmm. opposed to a, a physical experience. Um, it's like a vision. It's like a long vision, um, and maybe it was that. And, and that uh, if you throw in the notion that uh, it's not a vision is not necessarily something that just happens in your head, but that is is somehow a cooperation, a vision, a real vision is a cooperation between the imagination in your head and the imagination out there in the world. And, and you're always in this sort of middle ground, that liminal space again. You know, if, if, if Woody was encountering something that he couldn't, that his brain couldn't, couldn't see the way it really was, couldn't capture the way it really was, couldn't understand, and he wrapped his own images around it, there's still a, a back and forth. There's still a communication here. So there's there's like a, a it strikes me very much as a spiritual experience that he just took very literally because he's just a very down to earth literal person. And in doing so, he got laughed at. I, I could see that. I, I can I could see that too, uh, especially when thinking back to some of the like er, like earlier sightings of, you know, uh, of potential UFOs when they were seeing them as like ships in the sky. You know, because right. that's what their brain could, uh, you know, that's what they could accept or what they understood. And so they would say it is ships. And then thinking like in terms of like uh, Passport to Magonia, 
if we're right. thinking that all, of, you know, uh, uh, thinking about all of these these different things, like these entities are, we're seeing them the way that we see them because of our own folklore, our own t- stories, or whatever it might be. So, I absolutely, I can see that, and it would be contradictory to everything that we say on this show to not talk about it from that perspective, too. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I do. The more I read and get out there, and again, I follow the kitchen sink hypothesis that I think we're not, we're not dealing with just one thing; we're dealing right. with many things, and that's where I diverge from Mister Keel. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there is at least a, a good chunk of the phenomenon which is entirely participatory in nature. Mm-hmm. Not to say I'd be totally open for there to be ultra terrestrials and extraterrestrials and crypto terrestrials and tempor a uh, tempro terrestrials or however you pronounce that one. Um, but I I do believe based off the stories I've read, some of them, some of the literature just doesn't make sense. Unless you accept that what you're we're dealing with here is somehow half in this reality and half not in that our attention to it somehow shapes it or changes it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think Keel had what is kind of like, I mean, the way that my like that I think about it, I guess now is like I think Keel was half right that our interaction with it and it, it makes it more so to us to the world the more we interact with it, the more that it happens. However, I don't nece- I don't necessarily think that it is all just a reaction to us or whatever it is, unless we think of it from like a consciousness perspective, I guess. And that it's just a reaction of whatever the greater universal consciousness is. And the more we interact with it, the more we get in touch with it, it's just manifesting in that direction. I guess I could see it like that too, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I look, I think it's a consciousness kitchen sink. As right. Dick would put it that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is one like great universal consciousness, but there's also like, tons and tons of other consciousnesses we have consciousnesses and we're 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 like fish swimming in consciousness so uh when you encounter i I would think that when you with your little human consciousness encounters a a consciousness that's bigger uh you you just interpret i mean right now we're just i'm sitting here at my desk looking at my phone well not really that experience is happening in my brain my brain is interpreting this the thing in front of myself, I don't know if a phone really looks like a phone. That's just the way my brain interprets that, you know. But but now you take, right. you know, somebody from from uh, another planet uh, who happens just to be a, 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 a giant amoeba of some kind or invisible, some kind of, of energy that you can't actually see with, with the, the color spectrum of, of your eyes. Uh, what are you going to interpret it as? But it starts talking to you in your head. You're going to start constructing around it. And if I'm if I'm Catholic, I might see it as the Virgin Mary. And if I'm if I'm, you know, uh, Muslim, I might see it as 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 Allah. If I'm, you know, you look at it different ways. But then if you don't really have, if you're just a science fiction fan, which half the room behind me is full of science fiction books, um, you're going to see spaceships and you're going to see little green men and whatever. So your your brain is putting it together, and that's all you can do because literally the most mundane thing in your life is is just your brain putting information together. No, I, 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 I wholeheartedly, uh, agree. Like, I think that I, I, I think that our brain and how we, how it interacts with everything around us plays a humongous part in all of this. And I think we need to look at it a little bit more closely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's our conclusion yeah. every single time we get stuff. We don't know, <laughs> but we got to find out. I mean, that's why we read books. I don't think we're any closer. Correct. I don't think, I'm not sure we can get closer. Not at this time. 
<laughs> but we're going to keep reading books. Yeah. Almost like we made a whole show around it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's keep going. On May 11th, 1967, Woody left home to go out on a short trip to Pomeroy, Ohio, to try and make some sales. He didn't end up going to Ohio, though. Instead, he made his second trip to Lanulos. Hendrick Cold reached out to Woody, via telepathy, of course, telling him that he wanted to take Woody to see a place. Woody, on Cold's direction, drove out to a location about halfway between Reedsville and Tupper's Plain, Ohio. There, Woody found Indrid's ship, waiting for him. After making some arrangements for where to leave Woody's truck, he went on board. There, he met Indrid's wife, Kimmy. Carl Ardo was also there, along with two members of Indrid's crew, Tony and Daryl. The trip was a very rapid one, according to Woody. He wasn't sure what time he left, but it was likely in the early afternoon. The ship was completely sealed off to the outside. According to Woody, it was creating its own atmosphere very similar to that of Earth's. They took Indrid's ship to the mothership, which took them directly to Lanulos. The trip, in total, took about 30 minutes Earth time. As they approached the planet, Daryl, their medic, gave Woody a shot in his right arm. He was then taken to a separate room, stripped, and given some sort of antiseptic shower. All this to get Woody ready to enter the atmosphere of Lanulos. Once they landed, Woody was taken directly to Indrid's home, where he met the now 12-year-old son, Connard, their other son, who was 10, named Connor, and their 5-month-old daughter. Woody was given a tour of their home, which was furnished with elegant furnishings not unlike Earth's furniture. The whole house, according to Indrid, used atomic power for light, heat, and cooking. After the tour of Indrid's home, he was given a tour of the gathering, or the city. This was the number 27 gathering having no other names beyond numbers. They took Woody to a department store where he was allowed to look but not touch or take anything because he was forbidden to take anything back to Earth with him. Oh, and all the residents of Lanulos were naked. Mm -hmm. The fact that they were nudists made Woody feel like he stood out in his farmer's clothes. This also caused some of the people to become frightened of Woody at first. Indrid tried to quell these fears when he would introduce Woody to people, but it only did so much. Every time Indrid would introduce him to a new group, the hesitation would surface again. At Indrid's and Carl's urging, Woody, reluctantly, shed his clothes to help make him seem less threatening to the people of Lanulos. This did help matters considerably, though, as Woody was a bit chubby and everyone on Lanulos was healthy and fit, he did still draw some stares. He was then taken to a factory on the outskirts of the gathering. At this factory, they made steel. The factory had a moat, which workers would bathe in after their shift was over, getting fresh water and soap out of nozzles above them. Afterwards, taking one of the wheelless floating cars, they went to a nearby city, Gathering 28, which was about 30 miles away. In one of these cars, this took about 10 minutes, so the vehicle was going about 180 miles per hour. In Gathering 28, he was taken to visit a family that had settled on Lanulos from Earth, John and Carolyn Peterson from Acapulco, Mexico. They had settled here 40 years previously. After this meeting, Woody returned to Indrid's ship and was taken home. He arrived between 9 and 10 p.m. Earth time and was taken back to his truck. After all of this, after all that he had seen, he felt a deep love and admiration for the people of Lanulos longing to spread the message of their way of life to those that live here on Earth. 
Woody goes on in chapter 7, Lanulos and its people, to talk about many of the things that he learned from his conversations with Indrid, and what he observed on the planet. He says that Lanulos is a very happy world, large in part due to telepathy. There is very little bickering and next to no boredom. Every person has a job, and each family devotes time to exercise and play. The people of Lanulos have sports of all kind, the most popular of which is swimming. Most families even have an indoor pool so that they can swim in the wintertime. They also have sports similar to baseball, basketball, and football. I assume here that he means American football, not soccer. The average lifespan is 125 to 175 years and are raised with a health-conscious mindset, carefully balanced diets with food that is organically grown. They don't eat chocolate, pork, or any form of bleached flour. They prefer seafood over other meats, but they do have coffee. They just remove all the caffeine. Their monetary system is based around family size and general needs. They call it credits or scripts. So essentially, when they buy something, they hand over the script. The clerk writes down the product name on it and files away so that replacements can be ordered to keep things in stock. Now, according to Woody, they are a classless people. The leaders of the Guiding Council are given no greater privileges or awards than anyone else. They all worship the same god and worship this god together. Woody even claims that, while attending one of these services, he felt the presence of God. Their kids start school at the, quote, age of understanding and continue until they're 28. After graduation, you get to pick your job. And if you don't like it later on, you can pick again. They do have higher standards when it comes to marriage and birth control. Divorce and remarrying is allowed, but the only reason accepted for divorce is incompatibility. This also requires consent of both married parties, their parents, and the guiding council. Each family is only allowed two children, according to Woody, though they can adopt more if they wish, as accidental death and illness does happen, leaving a number of kids alone. Unlike Earth, though, they don't have a problem with promiscuity because everyone is taught to honor sex as the sole purview of marriage. So here, moving into discussion question number four, I want to take a moment to talk about the structure of Lanulos a little bit. It is very socialistic in the way that it's written down. And as someone who is not shy about how I believe in socialist style structure, I am curious what you three think when reading this. Do you think that this is a structure that, if properly implemented here on Earth, could work? Do you think that, even amongst the people of Lanulos, it's as simple as Woody attempts to make it out to be? Um, okay, so, I mean, sure. I Again, utopian viewpoint, absolutely possible in a perfect, utterly perfect rollout scenario. Um a rollout scenario that would involve toppling almost every government on Earth and replacing them overnight, including all infrastructure to not cause a period of chaos and destruction. Hey, according to Woody, that's exactly what happened because we'd have the help from uh, the space people. Yep, a couple. They said our, your economy would crash for a couple of days. Um, and I, I, it might it just seems a little too rosy for me. I, I don't know if we would really be able to embrace that kind of lifestyle, at least not where our species is right now. Um, but that said, 
a lot of your ability to accept that this world could exist like this or that we could exist like this comes down to what you believe about telepathy, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, 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 Indrid Colt straight up said, you know, the reason this is possible is because we have perfect understanding among each other due to telepathy. Um, and as we spoke about earlier, that might not be how humanity reacts to it. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that uh, it's certainly a lovely image. Mm -hmm. And that that's the thing is the view of Lanulos that's presented is is a very love looks like a very lovely place to live. Uh, it seems beautiful. It seems like they take care of each other, which is good. Those are all great things that I really wish we could do more here on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, that said, when they come down to the grim realities of it. As I often lament, I mean, reality is often incompatible with the, the utopian vision. Right. Well, I would throw in, I, I looked up the Karl Marx quote, a famous one, um, from each according to his ability and to each according to his needs. Well, that's that's exactly how Lanulus works. And, and yep. of course, Woody asks if, if that's communism and, and Andrew says, oh, no, it's the will of all the people. And that, there actually might be something to that in that uh I used to argue with my mother a lot when I was a teenager. My mother was a right-wing Nixon Republican. She was very conservative, and I wasn't. I was just the opposite, of course, as all teenagers are. Uh -huh. Naturally. And, uh, so I, I was I was like, hey, this sounds like great to me. And she said, well, it can't work because communism never works. Socialism never works because uh, it's, it goes against human nature. Because human nature, humans want more than they need, and they don't want to work. And and they they want to compete for everything, and uh, so she had a very dark sense of human nature, and and I uh, thinking and I was on, of course I always disagreed with her. I think I thought that human beings were better than that, but you do see a lot of that in especially Western society, mm -hmm. America, um, and so the thought was that Lanulos is basically a a communist Christian society where where the dark side of human nature that my mother expected is balanced off by religion because they do have this one world religion and they do all all have exactly the same set of beliefs they must not have a very large population uh, to agree so well but uh, that that seems to be the thing is that that you could it's like you could take the socialist understanding of of not basing a society on on lack i mean that's where we're in a, a society of of there's never enough everybody has to compete for everything mm -hmm. um, and they've set up a society that's just the opposite of that but they're able to do that because they also have the the values that they teach their children from birth that everyone is equal, that everyone is valuable, that that everyone must serve, everyone serves the good of all. Um, and then obviously that's not being taught on earth. Right. Um, so I'm not sure how you would how you would teach that um in the present moment. I mean, you you really have I don't know. I, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical as to whether Earth is salvageable on that front. I think we might potentially rebuild after the, the environmental apocalypse. We might rebuild on those uh, themes, but I don't really see us doing it now, honestly. And that's that that's 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 fair because thinking otherwise is kind of falling into that same utopian mindset, right? Trying to think that we are going to go against thousands and thousands of years of what we've been building and what humanity has shown that it'll do. But no, I, I mean, I agree to an extent. Jay. And Hey, wait, well, real quick. And Hey, if reincarnation is real, we get to be the ones to rebuild after we die in the hey. climate wars. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare for backbreaking manual labor for several generations. <laughs> so I like the idea 
of having a classless society. That's what I want. I want people to be able to have exactly what they need. And I, that, that that's what I want. I also consider myself by and large a socialist. Nothing else about Lanulose appeals to me. And it actually makes me deeply uncomfortable. It's um, the nudity, isn't it? No. Really? It's the fact that literally everyone on that planet is a copy of everyone else on that planet. Right. And oh. that there is no such thing as diversity or individuality and quite frankly if that's what we need to become in order to have a classless society i don't think it's worth it now that that's a decent point yeah no i i mean i I, at least the way that it was presented to us via woody i agree they they didn't show a lot of um just like there was not a lot of like you said individuality there and i wonder how much of that comes about uh like jack was saying from the fact that you have an entire planet behind a single religion and that single religion creates a singular worldview you know you only have one frame of reference through which you understand the entire universe and if that's shared across your entire society it you know, I, I got to imagine it would create cultural stagnation. And that is that is my that is honestly the root of my objection to the way. And again, it, it's possible that Lanulos is a real place and it's very different than how Woody presented it, that Woody only presented the parts of the society that appealed to him and fit his narrative or that he even understood. That's and that's also entirely possible. But Lanulose, as it is described in this book, again, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. And if I had to choose between living there and living on this planet, I would remain here. And ultimately, so did Woody. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. Well, I, I, live in a, I live in a rural small town. And I can tell you that that Lanulose is essentially a, a small town, white Protestant heaven. Right. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's what they want. You know, it's that, that sense of everyone, yeah, hive mind, everyone is yep. the same. And, and, you know, that was one of the things that turned me off from Christianity in the first place is I yep. don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to go to the heaven. I don't want to play a harp and sit on a cloud and sing Hosanna. I just don't want to do that. That sounds really dull. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that, that's kind of my whole thing with Lanulos. If it's just like, yeah, guys, I know you live in perfect peace and harmony, but like also your mom has to say it's okay for you to get divorced. And are you, do you really want to live in a society where you need your mom's permission to get a divorce and the guiding council. Yeah. You have to go to the government like, well, we have to go to the government here, but you know, it's so I, I do wonder again, going back to our previous discussion, if we're, if we're taking Woody at face value and we're just debating about what he actually saw, then I, you have to wonder how much of this was him projecting his idealized world onto them. So that leads me into my biggest problem with this portion of the book. So I like a lot of the foundation of what what Woody talks about here because like I like I said I'm not shy about uh, the fact that I believe in like socialist structure and you know community like so like society focused um government, whatever you want to say, where everybody gets what they need and there's uh, an ability to live for everybody. You know, the poverty line is non-existent, you know, yada, 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 blah, 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 whatever. Um, the problem that I have here and I, uh, is something that you kind of briefly hit on Jack is the one world religion. Okay. One, I will never 
be okay with that kind of concept because religion is one of the things that I think is most fascinating about us is that there are so many and it adds to this narrative of what the hell is going on around us. But two, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, I grew up as I talk about a lot. Um, well, I don't want to say I grew up, but I spent a large portion of my life uh, as an evangelical Christian and I was going to be a preacher. Uh, you know, one of the things that is the sign of the apocalypse in Christianity? What? One world religion. <gasps> so that huh. that strikes a really that's that strikes a really weird part of my brain when I when I hear that like that is something that is like the idealized thing. Uh, you know, in that it's because after the rapture, one of the things that happens that is during the end times is that the world comes together as a one world religion. Uh, and it is not Christianity in that, you know, because all the, all, all the, the previous Christians have already been taken away, blah, blah, blah. But um, on top of that, like I said, the foundation of what he says here in terms of how the society works, I think is really cool. And I agree with it's just like little bits and pieces that I don't agree with. And that brings me to my ultimate point of I don't this is the one chapter in the whole book when he talks about not any event, but rather what he learned that I think is almost entirely a form of projection. Because things that he said in here were never referenced in the previous or later chapters about things that he did during any of his adventures. For example, uh, when he says that he attended a, uh, a church service or a, a, a mass with these people and that there he felt the presence of God. Why wasn't that mentioned during your tour in the previous chapter? Why was that just mentioned so almost willy nilly here? So I sh that this that makes me struggle a little bit with some of the message that he's sending here. While I agree with aspects of it, um, I struggle because it it almost doesn't make sense with the previous narrative that he was telling. Yeah, and th and that I think is where some of my struggle is here. Um, just with this portion, not even talking about like his overall uh, trip to Lanulos or any of that. It's just this part. I struggle with that message because it doesn't. It doesn't match with what he told us in the chapter before it. Yeah, right, right. But it's it's very sincere to Woody, the, the person that we've seen on this. These, these are obviously values that he held before any of this happened, and so really, one hundred percent. Yeah. At this point, he's been he's been on the lecture circuit for a while now. He's been mm -hmm. doing this for a couple of years. I mean, this book came out in seventy one, and then we're talking about events that happened in sixty six. So there's some time that he's on the lecture circuit and he's getting a crowd and he's like, well, what do I want to say to these people? Mm -hmm. What do I want to communicate to these people? So he's, yeah, definitely taking a chance. Uh, he's taking the opportunity to be on the bully pulpit and share what he believes. Yeah. I know how to get them to stop having sex outside of marriage. I'll tell them <laughs> exactly. aliens think it's uncool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I, I think ultimately, yeah, I think this was a lot of this was him like interpreting whatever he may or may not have, um, uh, experience there and then tacking on his own little bits to make it more appealing to what he was, what he was lecturing about. In, it could also have been a sales tactic to try to sell the story oh, to his neighbors. It is a sales tactic. Yeah. It, it, it like those, like one of the first things you want to do in sales is relate to your buyer. Yeah. So that's one of the first things that you look for is a way to relate to them. Yeah, that's probably the point at which he was regretting having brought up the whole nudity thing. He's like, oh, man, that's not going to sell. That's not going to fit the meme here. 
All right. Well, are we good to go into the last section? Yeah. I, I am yep. ready. I only have a little bit left in the tank, so let's do this. All right. One evening, a man named Jim came to Woody's house asking for a good place to see spaceships. Woody told him to go check out Bull Ridge, an isolated area just outside of town. A few nights later, Jim returned with a story. It was pouring rain. Jim and his cousin Darla were out at the ridge when they saw a light land in the gully behind the car. Jim began hearing voices that Darla did not hear. Someone knocked on the door and asked telepathically if Darla was Jim's wife. When he thought back that she was his cousin, the man asked Jim to step out of the car and leave Darla behind, but that Jim would be back shortly. He did as he was told and he got out. He then started walking towards the ship, which was now glowing pink. He was led to the ship where he met another man who asked for his shoes and his watch. They then told him they would return the following night at the same location. So the following night, as mentioned before, Jim came back to visit Woody and told him this story. Woody telepathically contacted Indrid, who said he knew nothing of this interaction. Whoever Jim met was not Indrid's people. Woody decided to go with Jim and Darla on the second night. Like last time, they left Darla in the car and started towards where Jim had seen the craft. On the way, Woody spotted Indrid, Carl, and Demo, one of Indrid's friends from another planet, who was hiding nearby. They told Woody to keep going and that they were watching. They saw the ship and the two strange men outside it and started to walk towards it when Indrid reached out to Woody telling him to get their attention, so that Indrid and company could circle around behind them. So Woody began arguing with Jim as a distraction, and seizing the opportunity, Indrid and his crew surprised the two men and non-violently forced them back into their ship. Indrid told Woody and Jim to go home, and Indrid escorted these beings off-world. Indrid would later tell Woody that these were humanoids. These beings would have stolen everything from Jim and Darla if given the chance. Not by any cruel nature, but simply because their way of life says if someone leaves something behind or gives something up, it's no longer theirs. These humanoids have a man's feature and build, save for the area around the eyes, which is very wrinkled. They have pin feathers for hair, like a chicken, and come from a planet far outside the galaxy. According to Indrid, it was humanoids that abducted Betty and Barney Hill. And that's all we get to know about that. Going back in time again, the third time Woody met Indrid, Indrid told Woody why all this contact was happening with him. They, Indrid and his people, wanted Woody to do something. Woody was tasked with telling his story to the people that he knew, to hold lectures and public speaking if he had the opportunity, something Woody had already done several times by this point. Woody agreed, and hence, this book came into existence. Woody claims that he wants to foster peace between our people and theirs. He believes that they have much to teach us, such as mental telepathy and how to rid our world of fear and hatred and how to create an enduring peace. Fear, according to Indrid scientists, was the dominant power on Earth and has to be defeated. Woody believes that he or someone has to foster this relationship because they can't come and land here more openly. They've tried, and when they did, their ships have been shot at. He also says that if they wanted to hurt us, they would have by now, which is really ominous. Oh, yeah. Woody believes people fear the space people because our government will not tell us what they know about these peace-loving neighbors, who he says also have a military that could crush ours. 
He says that our government spends our tax money to investigate the ships and then say nothing because they believe that we, the people, are too stupid to understand what they found. He continues by saying that the government fears an economic collapse, which the space people say would happen. However, these space people also believe that the economy would be rebuilt in a matter of days with their help. Woody condemns the government for discrediting the best and brightest witnesses to secure their own corrupt power and that the lies and cover-ups from the government are getting more outlandish by the day, such as the accusation that astronaut witnesses were experimenting with LSD in space. Sounds awesome. Right? Like, that'd be the, that'd be the situation I'd try LSD under. Right? Do not take LSD while you are on a space shuttle i'll have a trip sitter and by that i mean a straitjacket <laughs> no what if no what if, what if any anything happens i was gonna say what if an emergency happens what if any tiny event at all occurs space shuttles are fragile and dangerous and not a place where you should be hallucinating guess i'll die and so will all your fellow astronauts and the dreams of your fellow americans it was their fault for letting me do it yeah, we shouldn't be sending you into space in particular. No. He concludes by calling on the American people to write to the government and demand that they be treated like the rational people that they are, that we deserve the truth and a chance to change, to enter a new and better way of life. And in the final chapter, Woody begins by claiming ongoing contact with the space people, as well as the ability to call on them to show up, all via mental telepathy. On July 19, 1968, he was giving a lecture at the University of Youngstown, Ohio. Afterwards, he asked for a ship to fly by. When it did, 12 to 15 witnesses saw two ships that day. This, according to Woody, prompted several of them to begin teaching philosophy of the space people. Woody believes that the space people are contacting more and more people on Earth and allowing their ships to be seen by larger and larger groups of people. These include a town in Colorado where hundreds saw a hovering UFO. He also believes that it will become harder and harder to discredit the sightings as more and more people continue to see them. He concludes, finally, that the space people show us all men are truly equal, and that we as a society should work for the collective good, that all people would be wealthy and happy in this post-scarcity world. Now, before we get into the last discussion question, I just want to note the things that Woody has in the appendix because they may be relevant to the question. So in the appendix, there is a chart of the intergalactic alphabet, which lines up perfectly with the English alphabet. So good. There is some medical records, including a psych evaluation. There is a letter from the pastor of Woody's church. Uh, some news articles about, uh, you know, uh, some of the news articles about him. Uh, there's Woody's NICAP report and NICAP statement, uh, more NICAP reports from the other, the other people that they had talked to at the time. And there are photos of who they call, quote, Team Cold, and a snippet that talks about Cold as if he is kind of a villain, uh, which, which also goes counter to the story in this book. Uh, and then there is photos of, uh, quote, Team Codal, who I have no idea who that is, but uh, they associate several people with the JFK assassination. So that's cool. That was a fun little extra at the back of the book of like, oh, and also the JFK assassination. Mm, that was odd, wasn't it? It's like, yeah, well, yes, I suppose <laughs> it was. So all of this 
brings us to our final discussion question, and it's the one that I'm sure everybody's been waiting to answer, or at least the listeners might be waiting for us to answer. I don't know. Uh, Do you believe him? And then ultimately, what about the overarching message of the story that we need to let go of fear and start working together as one people? What are your thoughts on that? And for the final question, let's start off with Jack. Well, now we're going to jump into my darkest of my dark theories. Good. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, Do I accept Woody's account at face value? No, Um, that that would be, uh, that's just a bridge too far. But do I believe that that Woody is is 80% sincere? I I mean, I think that's really the question. It's not really did it did Woody experience the things that he describes or does Woody believe that he experienced the things he describes? And I would say that I that I lean toward believing that he believes that he experienced these things. I don't I don't think he's a a, a congenital liar. I don't think I mean, I'm sure he he doctored things and he added things at the end. He added his 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 uh, spiritual spin. But I think by and large, he was he believed what was happening. Um, This heads towards my other theory. Um, so, so the question is: Were the were the entities he encountered Space Brothers? Probably not. I think the uh, entities he encountered, if they were supernatural or paranormal, we're, we're talking about ultraterrestrials. We're talking about an experience beyond his ability to comprehend under normal circumstances. But there's another possibility, and that is to to remember that that Woody Derenberger's contacts happened in the context of Mothman was going mm-hmm. on at the same time and also a major ufo flap was going on across the whole ohio valley at that time so uh it, it, chronologically it's the whole thing really started with woody's contact and it ended with the collapse of the silver bridge and, and the death of like 46 people mm-hmm. up there so that was so that there was this big window of, of uh where, where all kinds of things were going on and a lot of them were happening in the skies and when people saw uh, the thing about Mothman, he flew just like the flying saucers flew. People mm-hmm. see him flying in the sky, even though he, he drew closer in that. Um, I started thinking about this as, a, as an alternate theory. I saw a letter that John Keel wrote uh, before he, it, right at the beginning, when he was just headed down there. Um, and it was before he had come up with his ultra terrestrial hypothesis. At this point, he was still thinking all of this was space aliens. Um, and he wrote a letter to a woman. Uh, saying that that in his initial investigations he believed that uh extraterrestrials were setting up saucer bases in the ohio valley and they were perhaps underground bases and there was some kind of really dark thing going on down there potentially like a uh takeover and and who knows and if that was actually something that was happening if there was something like that whether it was extraterrestrial or ultra terrestrial if they were making some kind of a presence there you can bet that the military, U.S. military, would be aware of that mm-hmm. and would probably be uh, working against or for that, depending on on whose conspiracy you want to follow. Right. Uh, but uh. The, my, my thought then is that uh, if there was some big military operation going on there, potentially dealing with, with extraterrestrials or ultraterrestrials in that vicinity, um, and they couldn't control, say, the UFO flap. All these things that people were seeing in the sky, and maybe some of them were military things that people were seeing in the sky. Maybe Mothman was some kind of a creature that escaped from an experimental laboratory. You just never know. Um, so all of this was starting to, people were seeing it. Too many people were seeing it. Um, so what if Indrid Cold and his friends were from the U.S. military who had, who came to perpetrate a hoax on Woody rather than Woody perpetrating hoax on anybody else. But to to 
to create his contacts. And, and we see that that uh, Andrew Cole apparently cre- uh, contacted any number of people mm-hmm. around that area at the same time. Um, so maybe they were looking for somebody just gullible enough to start a ridiculous contact story, one that nobody would believe in order to cover up what was really going on in the skies that they couldn't control so that people would automatically just think, oh, well, it's just that crazy contact guy. Um, and then they wouldn't take it seriously. So they were already discrediting it in advance, knowing that uh, there was some kind of a battle going on or some kind of a mission going on. And the fact that it all just sort of ended with this, with the collapse of the Silver Bridge uh, does make you think, well, maybe it was a battle that somebody won. So, so but Woody, Woody would be completely sincere if he'd been hoaxed, just like, just like everybody claims that he was hoaxing. Interesting. Very interesting. I mean, it's essentially just saying that uh, Indrid Cold is a man in black. I mean, yeah. Well, and well, there you go. Here's the thing is if you look at it from the perspective of this is that Indrid Cold is not a, a not a you know nuts and bolts alien, you, you have to assume duplicity is involved. And right. so all of those options, they, they're, they're not just on the table. They're the most viable. Right. I, I think me personally, I uh, much like Jack, I don't accept Woody's story at face value. I believe something happened and I, I, I am convinced of his sincerity. Enough people who were trained investigators who were trained in uh, how to interview people and people who are you know, used to p- having people bullshit them uh, talk to Woody and they all came away with the same impression. He was a very earnest individual mm-hmm. and I, I don't doubt that. So I have no reason to doubt that he uh, believes what he's saying. I think uh, the, the the other part of your question is the one that's more interesting to me is Woody's message, because that's something that I, I did take from this. Even if even if well, let's say Jack is right and it was men in black or let's say it was ultra terrestrials messing with him. What I can't get past is the ultimate message is very positive. Mm-hmm. You know, get rid of fear and hate. Start embracing your fellow men. You know, basic be a stop being shitty yeah. message. Be and, a good person. And I can't get past the, the the fact that ultimately that positive message, it, it lets me forgive uh, the possibility that Woody is pulling wool over my eyes. Because that has to be a possibility in my mind. That he sure. is, that he did lie or fabricate or spruce something up with a salesman language. I think that in the end, I see Woody much in the same light. I see a lot of work of John Keel, but for completely different reasons in that I am comfortable leaving it in that liminal zone between truth and fiction. I don't I think probably some some of it's real. I think some of it's not. And I don't think I will ever get answers as to which is which. Right. Well, I mean, you won't. No, I won't. I mean, Woody's dead and I'm not going to track down his daughter. That seems uh, rude. Tanya. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but she's got her own book on the stuff on the subject, too. So that might be an interesting follow up read. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to look into that. Yeah. All right, Jay, what are you thinking? Um, I am I am willing I am willing to believe that the initial encounter with injured cold quite possibly happened or that something similar occurred to him. And I am willing to believe that he may have had some sort of ongoing relationship with an entity that was not of our version of Earth, because admittedly, there are weird things that were happening around the Derenberger family that other people have corroborated that we do not have any sort of viable explanation for, like Woody being able to summon the UFOs and the weird lights that kept showing up around their house. All of that is 
is is very strange. And at the end of the day, NASA did deem him a person worthy of talking to and spending five days talking to him, trying to figure out what was going on. Well, yeah, I mean, because that visit, we don't know. We don't know a lot of the details, but the unlisted co-author of the book, uh, Harold Hubbard, he did try to follow up with NASA. And basically they said, yes, Woody was here. We met with him, but they wouldn't give any details. Yeah, same with uh, Harold Salkin and uh, the investigators from NICAP. They all did the same thing, got the same answer. Yep. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's fine. It's and it. It's everything that happens outside of Earth's atmosphere that I struggle to believe. And and yes, it becomes more plausible when we are we are not people that believe in nuts and bolts. We believe in the spiritual aspect of it. But I. I also don't want to become the sort of person where I'll swallow anything that's put in front of me. For sure. Yeah, I just and again, it's. This is this might be rooted in unconscious bias. I get vibes off of Woody Derenberger and his story that I do not like. And while I think that his overall message is good of let go of fear, embrace each other coming from him in particular, I don't hear cooperate. I hear conform. And that makes me incredibly suspicious. And at the end of the day, if Lanulos is real, I don't like it. And I'm not sure I want I want anything to do with those people. And that's and that's completely fair. And I think a big part, like I and I, to an extent, I agree. I'm on like a very similar level. Um, I I think I I think my personal take in terms of whether or not I believe him, uh, like everybody here, uh, at face value, no, I I do not. I think that something happened. We don't know what it is. We'll likely never know what it is. Uh, but when it comes to his overarching message. Uh, like just taking the base root of the idea of, you know, embracing each other as one society and letting go of like the fear and the hate and yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, I agree. I obviously, I agree. I yell about that on the show all the time. Um, but I think one of the things that put us puts a sour taste in my mouth, and this is just a lot of my hesitancy coming from a, a, a an ex Christian background, is that specific overtone throughout the whole book. And like we've talked about throughout the whole episode, I think a big part of that is his own interpretation, like going into it, like that's his way of uh, comprehending what was happening and uh what you know and everything else that was surrounding it so i think that might be where that is so ultimately i think i can let go of that if i just ignore the the christian overtones and i go yeah uh something you know something happened um i i i like his message overall i just think that uh he was that he, I think personally that he did tilt the narrative to uh, appeal to some more of his personal views, whether that was intentionally or not, we'll never know. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with that. And I, I liked everybody else's answers. So before we move into our final bit into housekeeping, is there any last words that anybody would like to say about visitors from Lanulos? It was a I was just going to say that, I was just going to say that as the climate change happens and things heat up, we may have to all go nude, in which case we'll probably start being telepathic as well. So that's we could be this could be our future. God, is it the clothes that's ruining it? It, I mean, but I like clothes. Me too. They're soft. 
and warm. <laughs> we live in Michigan. We will die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it all heats up. Then, yeah. You know. I The only other thing I have to add is the about the author. Do it up. Okay. So. Woodrow Wilson Derenberger was born October 10th, 1916. Uh, He's most well known, obviously, for his UFO contactee experience and his relationship with the enigmatic Indrid Cold. He worked as a sewing machine salesman and a truck driver at various stages in his life. He published this book, Visitors from Lanulos, in 1971 with the assistance of a man named Harold W. Hubbard. As I said previously, initially, the book was only available at metaphysical conventions that Woody was at. Um... That was his only book. Uh, And sadly, the book brought him little peace. Uh, His family received harassing phone calls for years following its publication, and several family members blamed lost jobs and friends on their association with Woody. Uh, Furthermore, Derenberger suffered severe headaches and depression in the years following the book's release and his divorce in 1970. Through the 1980s, he continued to correspond with a small group of other contactees and believers often sending these people letters which had supposedly been penned by Indrid Cold himself. Though UFO investigators at the time were over his story, and nobody investigated the letters as far as I can tell. In 1990, he moved back to Mineral Springs from Parts Unknown to live out the last few months of his life. He never recanted his story, nor did he ever speak of the space people publicly ever again. It is said that he lived the rest of his life in relative seclusion as he feared the masses of UFO buffs and skeptics that had hounded him for years. He died on May 7, 1990 at the age of 73 and is buried in the Mount Zion Cemetery in Mineral Wells. Uh, His story is kept alive by his daughter, Tanya Derenberger Bowman, who claims her own series of ongoing encounters with injured Cold and his crew, whom she regards as family. She wrote of her continued interactions with the space people in her book, Beyond Lanulos, Our 50 Years with Injured Cold. And that is all I could find about his personal life. I couldn't huh. even find, I actually, I actually tried hunted down his obituary and I cannot find anywhere something that says how he died. So I'm assuming natural causes, you know, a heart attack or something like that. It makes sense, but. I mean, he was pretty old, wasn't he? 73. Yeah, I mean, that's. Not an uncommon age for men of that time. Uh, no. And he died in 1990 uh, at the age of 73. They probably didn't perform an autopsy. Yeah. 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 They probably it, it, his death his it, wherever his death certificate is. It almost definitely has natural causes written on it because that's what they write when they don't see the need to perform an autopsy. Right. Yeah. All right. So we ready for housekeeping. Ready for housekeeping. Housekeeping. So. As always, if you liked what you heard, please give us a like on whatever streaming platform it is that you're listening to us on. And if it is specifically Spotify or uh, Apple, please leave us a five-star review. That actually really does help us in the algorithm. It pushes us up so that more people can listen to us. And I hope that if you're listening to us, you want more people to listen to us so that eventually, maybe one day, we'll get paid. I don't know if they care about that. Oh, right. Yeah. So that don't worry about that. I think we're the only ones who care about that. Oh. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Ultimately, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I don't really care, but I would like to. That would be nice. But anyway, uh, you can also find us on social medias. Uh, on Twitter, we have a podcast Twitter, at Pod, And I am also on there with my personal Twitter, at Wix. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. We also have an Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast. 
We also have a Tumblr, Noctivigant Podcast, where I post only the choicest of memes. Choice. And we also have our own Reddit account where I interact with people sometimes, also called Noctivigant Podcast. It's like there's a theme. And before we go out, uh, Jack, where can people find your work? JackPrestonKing.com is my author website. All my books are there, excerpts from everything. Um, Lots of book reviews. I read a lot of strange stuff. If you like this show, you'll like the stuff I review on there. And pretty much everything I read, I write a review just so I can remember that I read it. Yeah, I've read quite a few of your reviews. I like them. Yeah, they're very, very insightful. Uh, yeah, and obviously look down to our uh, episode description. We're going to have a link to uh, Mr. King's site there. Mm-hmm. We will, and uh, I think I think that's all for today. I think so. So thank you so much, Jack, for joining us today. It was a genuine delight. You were a lot of fun, and you brought some really interesting ideas to the table. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I would be happy to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Well, Well, if there is nothing else, then good night, ghoulies. Good night, ghosties. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there. Don't get lost. I really think they should get lost. No. I'm just not that spontaneous.